Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here. And as longtime listeners know, Ion Travel is normally produced each week from a different destination around the world. And the good news is, we're about to travel again. But in the meantime, I'm now happy to present you this special broadcast from Washington, D.C., and the Conrad Hotel. It was recorded right before COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. I'll be talking with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton about all things Washington, Roxanne Roberts from the Washington Post, and then somebody I always talk to in the nation's capital, Peter Jacob, the chief curator at the Smithsonian's amazing National Air and Space Museum, and so much more. So here's our show from the Conrad Hotel in Washington, D.C. 18 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here from the Conrad Hotel in Washington, D.C., as Ion Travel continues. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with the imaginative name petergreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that essential and hard work all around the world, helping the people who need it the most, and an opportunity for you to immerse yourself in an up-close and personal way and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities, and Washington, D.C. is certainly no exception. Check out the Oyster Recovery Partnership. They're actually at Annapolis, and they've been dedicated to the restoration and growth of the critical Chesapeake Bay oyster beds. And you can get out there on the, on, on the water, volunteer with them, uh, planting, sanctuary reefs, you name it. And the best thing about it is you're hanging with the locals who really live here, and when you're finished volunteering, who better to give you a tour of the area than those people themselves? It's a wonderful win-win situation, and I can guarantee you that what you get back from what you give back is exponential in return. If you want more information on how you can help out with the oyster beds, just go to oysterrecovery.org or go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global schedule. I'm honored to welcome our next guest. It's hard to believe. Talk about longevity. 15th term in Congress. I am going nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> Go, there's, there's a campaign slogan. I'm going nowhere. Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, thank you for joining me. My pleasure. 
You know, it's it's interesting to know because here we are doing stories in, in our show on travel, and so much of it is based on infrastructure. So much of it is based on things that people just take for granted. You know, it's like the couple that comes back from vacation, you know, where'd you go on vacation? Oh, we went to Aruba. Where's that? I don't know. We flew. You know, it, it's... But there's so much more that goes into it. And I remember from day one of the Trump administration, they kept on announcing Infrastructure Week. I'm still waiting for, I, I don't know about you, I'm still waiting for Infrastructure you know, Week. Well, whatever happened, Infrastructure <laughs> Week? Well, I sure have been waiting for it because I'm chair of the subcommittee on highways and transit. And we are literally writing the 2020 uh, so-called highways bill. Of course, it's not about highways alone any longer. For the first time, we are writing a very different kind of bill. It has to, what, what, whatever highways we are able to do have to be resilient, have to be attuned to climate change. Um, we, we have to incorporate um, a varying mode of tra- varying modes of transportation. For example, um, in, in streets today, you see scooters. Uh, you see um, uh, different kinds of, of, of taxis are not alone. Uh, you see um, uh, all kinds of ways of uh, using new, new kinds, I should say, of uh, transportation to get from one place to, to another. Uh, and we've got to incorporate that into how we rethink what a street and a highway is all about. You know, I go back to a famous quote from Dwight Eisenhower who said, America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. It certainly did. It and we did. Built, and we have built it now. And the question is, what comes next? And, of course, we're not just talking about the streets. We're talking about the bridges. Uh, you know, the infrastructure there, we, you know, the, the civil engineering folks are always telling me that we're at risk with so many bridges in America at the state level uh, that have not either been properly rebuilt or reinforced or inspected that have outlived their usefulness, either, usefulness either in terms of their capacity or their structural integrity. I think, we, I think uh, the, uh, the organization that grades us on bridges gives us a D minus. D is in dog. <laughs> <laughs> and what are we doing in that department? Because some of those bridges are not federal or state. Well, literally, that's true. But many of them uh, have federal components and could, in fact, use highway money. We have had a massive, uh, a few years ago, a massive uh, collapse of a bridge they went from one part of a state to another part. So I don't know if we have to wait till London bridges are falling down to understand the importance of starting, and I must say starting, uh, to re- revitalize our bridges. I mean, even if we started today, we're talking 10-year projects here. Well, I'm glad you say 10 years because you're talking about so many bridges um, that what we need is a plan. Well, we really do need a plan. Uh, we need to focus on the bridges that are worse off first and uh, to start from scratch without a plan. And remember, every state gets to do what it has to do, but it would be very helpful for the, <laughs> for the committee uh, to try to get, uh, or the federal government, I should say, to try to get the states together so that uh, since we are a coast-to-coast country, uh, we, we could work in tandem, and th- this could make some sense. 
And, you know, it's not too difficult, I think, to connect the dots between better bridges and better highways and better environment, better safety, better health, better, health, better commerce. Well, it's, it, uh, this uh, uh, issue of getting from one place to, to the other is critical in a huge continental country like this. Now, we're, we're used to me- media now and, and talking to one another without having to travel there, but there's no way to get around the need to get from one place to another. We are so far behind. We have, for example, the last bill four years ago had no new money in it. We passed a... How do you pass a bill with no new money? <laughs> using phantom ways to fund it. Um, this is a country that has decided that you shouldn't spend money anymore, and we really do not fund even our basics. And when I say basics, I do mean highways and infrastructure. And, you know, without the highways and without the infrastructure, we'd be spending a whole lot more money because of trying to make up the difference in lost time, lost productivity, and just pollution. Yeah, and, and right now we're, for example, in writing this bill, as I speak, we've got to consider first salvaging, saving all that money that has been put into uh, our highways as it is instead of letting them deteriorate further. And then what do you do that is new? So when you get this far behind, uh, it, it becomes very difficult to catch up. And I'm very afraid of a scattershot approach uh, frankly, to it because of the way money is divided among the states. Well, I go back again to the the beginning of this administration where they made an announcement, which, by the way, I supported. I mean, as as a, as a citizen, that you know, highway and infrastructure was a national mandate. The the president has never, in his budget, um, allocated any money to highways and transit for this infrastructure week. I mean, like everything else, it's all about uh, it's all about uh, uh, political advertising. So there's there's style, but no substance. Exactly, it's just no, nothing came of it. But but the even had people over at the White House, even had even invited um, speaker uh, and the minority and majority leaders uh, to talk about this issue. And that talk evaporated. What's going to get that talk back on the table? Uh, What's getting it back on the table is the Democrats took the House um, last year, and we are writing a bill. Uh, And writing the bill, which will have some additional money in it, unlike four years ago, uh, is going to call the question. And it's interesting to note that the Republican Senate is— in one of its committees already writing a bill and putting more money in it. So there does seem to we all we do seem to be in a wake up call moment. So on both sides of the aisle there's at least a recognition that you got a problem that needs to be fixed. Yeah, that seems to be that recognition. I'm not sure where the president is. I think he'll sign whatever we give him. That's a good but idea. But he's, he's 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 there's no leadership coming from there. Wow. Speaking of writing bills, uh, you represent the District of Columbia. Speak, I mean, we've seen representation, taxation without representation. I mean, are they ever going to fix that? Oh, yeah. You're going to fix it beginning this year. First of all, people I represent 
uh, pay the highest taxes per capita in the United States. And I'm, that's a factoid that most Americans don't know. Pay more taxes than you in New York and California, talking federal taxes, of course. But without any representation at all in the Senate, with only me in the House, uh, God bless you, I do have voting committee. As I say, I'm writing the Highways and Transit Bill right now, and I vote on the floor on some matters, but not on final votes. So what, how are you going to fix that? Well, this year, we begin to fix that in a big way. My bill to make the district the 51st state will go to the floor before the summer. And we already have enough co-sponsors, not just, not just votes, co-sponsors to pass the bill. Hold on to that thought for a second. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, here's a cliffhanger. We'll find out what's going to happen with that bill. And then we'll talk about some train issues as well. We're talking to Eleanor Holmes Norton, the 15-term congresswoman representing the District of Columbia. Back with more right after this. Thirty-three minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Conrad Hotel in Washington, D.C. We've been speaking with Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton, a representative from the District of Columbia, and fifteen. Ter- I always have to say it with fifteen term. It's a, it's just an amazing legacy and, and run for you. You've got a bill that's never really been appreciated up until now to make the District of Columbia a fifty-first state. And the reason it's taken me fifteen terms is that I've spent most of my time in the Congress in the minority. Whenever I was in the majority, I was able to put push um, <laughs> matters for the district uh, uh, forward. Now that we have taken the majority, have gotten so many co-sponsors, looks like we're even going to keep the majority. Uh, I am certain that this bill, the D.C. statehood bill, will pass this very year, 2020. Wow. Amazing. We, and we have not had a new state in this country since Hawaii, I believe, in yeah. 19... Hawaii and Alaska came in at the same 59, time. 1959. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, amazing. All right, I promised we have to talk about trains. You know, earlier you and I said, you know, we talked about the famous Dwight Eisenhower quote that America didn't build the interstate highway system. The interstate highway system built America. Actually, it was the railroad system that built America. That's where it started. Abraham Lincoln, even in the Civil War, uh, continued to build the railroads all the way to the West. And at one point, there was such a thing called railroad time. You could actually tell time by the railroads. A railroad clock was the, was the thing that people depended on. Well, now we have Amtrak. And since 1977, it's sort of struggled. And it's continued to struggle. Um, to and, and yet, their ridership is at an all-time high. Um, they're, they're still not making money. Uh, but people depend on it. It's, it, it is, uh, I came here yesterday on Amtrak. And I'll go back on on uh, over the weekend on Amtrak. So, I mean, it's a it's a big part of the American infrastructure, and yet the improvements haven't really been made. Amtrak is seventy percent owned by the federal government. The federal government had to take so it over. landlord. Absolutely, had to take it over in uh, the nineteen seventies. Uh, again, because it wasn't making money and because it had to, had to be subsidized. And by the way, train travel is subsidized all over the world. It, it is. <laughs> it, it, isn't, it isn't expected to pay for itself. Uh, but it means that despite uh, the preference for train travel often uh, by the American people, uh, it lags in attention if attention means funds from the federal government. And that's where it's got to come from. 
when you go to literally every advanced country in the world, the first thing you see is speed rail, for example. That's right. We've got Amtrak. It's going faster than it used to. But Everything's relative. <laughs> <laughs> very relative and very slow compared to yeah. Uh, every I other mean, country. Amtrak can, in the Northeast Corridor can go up to about 100 miles an hour for about 29 miles. If it went 100 miles an hour for the 30th mile, it would derail because the tracks... The infrastructure. Are, and those tracks are controlled by the freight lines. Freight lines aren't interested in high-speed rail. Freight lines don't want to put that money into it. Amtrak's got new stock that's on order that they can't put on the tracks because the tracks can't handle it. So... Isn't it the answer to have a little conversation with the freight lines? To say, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and here's where the federal government, uh, the administration, needs to bring the parties together. We're nowhere near there. We're simply trying to get the money for the Amtrak of today. And far too focused on where we are today when it comes to train travel, when the rest of the world is light years ahead of us. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Richard Anderson, former CEO of Delta, uh, took over Amtrak about three years ago, was working for no salary. He just wanted to do his government service, uh, just left. Um, and I can imagine his frustration about trying to improve service where the, the line itself on their long distance services, like, you know, the Sunset Limited and the Zephyr and the Empire Builder and all those legendary trains, the Southern Crescent, which comes right here through Washington, D.C., loses money on every run because it's stopping to pick up four passengers in Kalispell, Montana at three in the morning. Mm -hmm. So his thought was, well, since we can't make money on that route, we should substitute bus service, mm -hmm. all right? Get rid of the dining car, get rid of all the things that romanticize the trains, <laughs> uh, and that's gonna save it. And yet, ask one small mayor in this country, one small town mayor or city official, if they wanna lose rail service, and the answer is, Absolutely not. Well, and it's not up to them, frankly. I know. If it's 70% owned by the federal government, it's up to us. And so what's the answer? Well, the answer... Is Kalispell out of business? <laughs> is who? Kalispell, Montana. I'm, I'm just using that as an example. Yeah, of course it is. Nobody has... You know, the, for example, uh, you see we're down to four airlines now. So you can say, well, you know, what happens to me if I live on a route that is not on that airline? Well, it's a private business, and they've been able to cut it. Just because Amtrak is controlled by the federal government doesn't mean it should not be run as a private business. It's not run that way. So as you get rid of what doesn't work or what doesn't bring money, then it's going to continue to go the way it's gone. This is not subject to all everybody who wants train travel. Raise your hand. This is a business. It happens to be owned by the federal government. All right, so... Hello, Miss Owner. As an owner, then, what do you do? You act like a business. And if you act like a business, you don't let four people in Montana decide what the route is. <laughs> we are really dumping on people in Montana today. But I get the point. I mean, the point is you're going to have to restructure the route system. Restructure is the right word for it. Yeah. Okay. So now having said that, I'm going to put you on hold for one more second. We're going to take a break and then come up with figuring out how we restructure and what we can do next. We're talking to Eleanor Holmes Norton, the 15-term congresswoman representing the District of Columbia and possibly the next state in the United States. Back right after this.
43 minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C. We've been speaking to Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. I, I love saying it, 15-term. <laughs> I love hearing it, too. I'm, I'm right there with you from the District of Columbia. All right, we've talked about the need to fix. How do we fix Amtrak now? Because so many people have tried. Well, you can't fix the Amtrak of today by looking at the Amtrak of, of today. You have to envision what you want Amtrak to look like and then to begin the long, hard road to, re, to re, restructuring Amtrak. And I use restructuring deliberately. Uh, and whether or not that, that, of course, involves everything from vision to money. I cannot tell you that the Congress is going to fork up uh, substantial amounts of money uh, for Amtrak. So this has got to be done incrementally. And what worries me is that we haven't even started. I don't so much mind incrementalism. This is the United States, and that's how everything happens. I do mind being stuck on stupid. Yeah, I got it. We'll be stuck on stupid with Amtrak for a while. Oh, we have. And yet, look what Amtrak is doing. Everybody's getting on Amtrak, at least on the East Coast these days. Oh, the Northeast Corridor is their biggest moneymaker, and it works. You know, it, although when we talk about high-speed rail, let's be honest, the Acela will will charge you anywhere from two to three times what the Northeast Regional Train will charge you to arrive in Washington, D.C. about 19 minutes ahead of the Northeast Regional Train. Is it all, only 19 minutes ahead? And sometimes did, it is, yes. Uh, that I, ne- I didn't know. I thought aren't, the Acela, aren't you glad you stopped by today? <laughs> yeah. I thought the Acela will get you there. Not really. It, it takes, you know, two hours and 36 minutes, and the Northeast Regional is like three hours and 10 so it's it's in that it's in that range, um, because it goes back. It speaks to what we don't really have with high speed rail. Yeah, but but it makes fewer stops, and, and, it I, does. and I'm surprised that yeah. it doesn't get you there. Faster. No, there are one or two of the trains that will make even fewer stops. But on average, that's what we're talking about. Uh, and I'm look, I'm the biggest fan of rail travel. I I love it. And when you and if you did a time and motion study between you know going to an airport like LaGuardia and flying to Washington Reagan versus going to Penn Station and taking the train to Union Station, it's a no-brainer. Take the train. And that's what people understand. (laughs) I know. But now they understand it, but we now have to translate that into some action. Well, they understand it, and they're they're making Amtrak as profitable as it can be, depending on customer service alone. But the uh, government of the United States has not done what the government of every other advanced nation has done, and that is kicking its part. Okay, but it gets down to that five-letter word, money. Everything in this country comes down to that. All right, but is there a, a is there a unified response at this point? No, there is not. Congress is not even thinking about uh, anything but funding uh, Amtrak in the next appropriation. Right. And, of course, they're going from appropriation to appropriation. And we do that on an annual basis. <laughs> so it's a struggle. It's not only a struggle, but doing appropriation on an annual basis doesn't allow you to, grow. to plan for the future. You can't grow. So that would really be up to our committee, our committee to think of a, a long-range plan. But for and that, would, you would, would need— you, And would you be on that committee? I'm on that committee. Okay. The problem is that you can't do that without help from the administration. Uh, and here is a um, part of uh, uh, the— uh, agenda that really doesn't have divisions between Republicans and Democrats. This committee is the most bipartisan committee in the Congress, the committee that deals with transportation. So if there's any hope at all, it would be in this committee? It, it would be. And is there hope? <laughs> well, there's plenty of hope, but but there has to be leadership. You you don't, in a committee, you don't redesign a railroad system. Uh, you need uh, to work with an administration that has that kind of vision. I know. 
and it's and I, I hope you get a chance to do it because it would be a shame to lose this infrastructure. I mean, or let it have it get any worse than it is. Well, it's getting worse every year, so it's going to continue to get worse. I think this new bill, there will be some funds uh, for slowing that decline. So it's a Band-Aid. Oh, it, it, everything's a Band-Aid. Uh, you're not going to create something new at this point. The reason it's a Band-Aid is you've got to save what you got, and we're losing that. So where do you see Amtrak in five years? Oh, Amtrak's going to continue to do well. Uh, Amtrak is bursting at the seams. I think Amtrak will continue to improve. I think the tracks will continue to improve. If anything in transportation is going well, it's Amtrak. But Amtrak is doing it on its own without a lot of help from the federal government or the Congress. All right. When was the last time you were on the train? Not recently, but um, I'm, I'm uh, a devotee of the train as well. <laughs> a devotee? <laughs> <laughs> I, me too. You know what? You get a chance to think. You get a chance to look out the window. Mm-hmm. You actually have a chance to have a conversation with somebody. It's It ain't bad. It certainly isn't. All right. Representative Eleanor Holmes Norton, 15-term congressman representing the next state in the United States. Did you like the way I said that? I like that, especially since I'm running for re-election in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. And back with more of Eye on Travel as we return to the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C., right after this. Thank you, Congressman. Eighteen minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here as Ion Travel continues from the Conrad Hotel right here in Washington, D.C. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, but opportunities for you in an up-close and personal way to give back to the people who need it the most every time you travel and just about everywhere you travel. Uh, We like to localize those opportunities. Washington, D.C. is certainly no exception. Check out the Oyster Recovery Partnership. They're located not far from here in Annapolis, Maryland, dedicated to the restoration and growth of Chesapeake Bay oysters. And don't they need the help? They work regularly, actually, with the Conrad right here in Washington, and their mission is to increase the number of oysters in the bay by planting them in sanctuaries, managed reserves, and public fishing grounds. Actually, you can volunteer any way you can by maintaining the oyster cages from late summer to late spring. It's coming right around the corner when they will be collected for planting in the sanctuary reefs. The cool thing is you can do shell recycling, assisting every week with every possible effort of this group. Here's the cool thing. You're outside and you're working with the people who actually live there. Who better to give you a tour of the area than the locals themselves? If you want more information, this is easy. Oysterrecovery.org or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com for the entire list on a global level. My next guest, an old friend of the show, I like to have him on every time we come back to Washington because he's got the best job in the world. He's the chief curator at the National Air and Space Museum, of course, part of the Smithsonian. Peter Jacob, how are you, sir? Just fine. You know, there's so many things I always want to talk to you about because there's always an anniversary. There's always something coming up, a milestone in aviation history. uh, And I'm thinking of a couple of them. Uh, uh, one is coming up in July, and I'm I'm feeling myself very old about this. Uh, July 25th, I believe, is the 20th anniversary of the crash of the Concorde in Paris, uh, and, and and it comes at a time which is ironic, where there's now a resurgence in the interest about supersonic travel, about whether or not we can mitigate you know the the sound barrier, I mean, the, you know the, the sonic boom to be able to you know 
subsonically not have to fly, supersonically fly over land, right? That was one of the challenges with the Concorde. And the thing is, you know, if you look at the Concorde technically, it was 14 separate fuel tanks, uh, and the flight engineer's only job was to was to maintain the you know the, the center of gravity by moving fuel from one tank to another. Uh, it was not technologically a very new plane because it was basically an F-4 fighter jet that took passengers. But it's now interesting that 20 years after the the crash of the Concorde and about 18 years after it last flew uh, as as an aircraft type, it may be coming back. Well, it's interesting. It's kind of a, a, a sign of our times. Uh, initially, the Concorde was really thought to sort of service the business community, so you could get to have face-to-face meetings within a relatively short period of time. Yeah. But today, with the uh, teleconferencing and the communications that we have, from, the, from a business point of view, it's not entirely necessary. Of course, face-to-face meetings are always important as well, but um, our world is a little bit different, so uh, supersonic travel would have kind of a different place in it. And if I'm reading the tea leaves correctly, we're not going to talk about... 100 passenger planes, we're talking about much smaller aircraft. Uh, it remains to be seen. Yeah. Um, the other aspect of the Concorde and supersonic travel, of course, was the economics, the cost. It was, it was just not economically viable, apart from all the technical considerations. It's called fuel. <laughs> it was one giant flying fuel tank. Uh, but going back to all the exhibits, because you have so many different exhibits there, that some of them are permanent, some of them rotate, but the one that's coming up, what, we're coming up on the 75th anniversary of 30 seconds over Tokyo. Right, the famous Jim, Jimmy Doolittle raid. Well, we're observing the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War here in 2020. Uh, May 8th will be the 75th anniversary of VE Day, and then in the in the fall, uh, VJ Day. So uh, there's a lot going on uh, focusing around uh, observing that anniversary. And of course, that raid was amazing because if I do my homework and I, I remember I remember the book and the movie, they took off from aircraft carriers so loaded with fuel. Uh, I mean, I'm amazed they could actually take off from those aircraft carriers based on how heavy those planes were. Yes, they were not naval aircraft. They were actually B-25 bombers, which were not designed to take off of aircraft carriers. And they were specially prepared, and the crews were specially trained. And uh, it was really uh, uh, quite a a marginal thing to get off the aircraft carriers uh, with those things. Also, the fuel issue, because they had been discovered. So they had to take off from the aircraft carrier further away from their target than they had anticipated. And... I remember reading about this because, you, you know, you need airlift. And, you, and so the, the aircraft carriers had to turn into the wind and almost go full speed ahead just to be able to help these guys get off the, get off the deck. Yeah, everything had to be just right just to, to make it into the air. But, but they did it. On all the exhibits, I mean, I, I go back to, you know, the, the first IMAX movie you did to fly, right? Is it still being shown, by the way? Uh, we have a range of films uh, occasionally that, that, that shows, but we do have a, uh, several mission, what we call mission films as well as uh, feature films that we show in the evenings. Yeah, if you've never been to an IMAX theater at the Smithsonian at National Air and Space, you've got to go do it. The thing I, have, I always say to you, and, and you laugh about it, is whenever I go there, I do serious damage in your gift shop because you have all the beautiful model planes I mean, oh, my God. I mean, stuff you can't find anywhere else. Well, we don't laugh at that. We appreciate that. <laughs> but it's true. And if you've got kids, of course, they can become junior astronauts, too. They, you've got the flight suits. We've got everything to accommodate your needs. And the best part of the deal, the museum is free. It is. It is. Uh, all the Smithsonian museums are uh, free uh, attendance to the public. Uh, we do have some charge for films and, and other programs. But uh, uh, access to the exhibitions and the collections is entirely free. Of all the new exhibits you've got coming in, or that are there right now, what's the one that that fascinates you the most? Well, actually, we are redoing the entire 
National Air and Space Museum building, the downtown building. We have two buildings, of course, one in downtown and Washington. And one out by Dulles. And one at the Dulles Airport called the Udvar-Hazy Center, uh, which, of course, that's open and running as, as usual. And the Udvar-Hazy Center, which I can never pronounce it, they've got the Concorde out there. We have a Concorde. We have the Space Shuttle. We have the SR-71 Blackbird. We have the B-29 Enola Gay. Does the uh, SR-71 still hold the speed record? It, uh, the one that we have in the museum set a transcontinental speed record when it was delivered to us, 66 minutes across the United States. Unbelievable. The other day, for those people who have been reading up on their newspapers, there was a British Airways flight that was going from New York to London that benefited from an amazing something like 800-mile-an-hour tailwind. It was ridiculous and made it to London in like the fastest time ever recorded. I think it was actually the second fastest. Oh, was it really? Second. Yeah. Well, this is pretty fast. Yeah, no, they uh, they got in ahead of schedule, so uh, they didn't miss their connecting flight. Although, if air travel is what I think it is, and if I remember the way things usually work, there was no gate available when he got there. <laughs> That's always what happens, you know. We're arriving early, and I got to sit for a gate. Well, you know, it's just it's just like the Doolittle Raiders. Everything has to come together perfectly to get your flight in and out. Exactly. And bottom line is, I mean, you guys are a hands-on museum. I mean, I get a chance to actually not only to see stuff, but touch it, too. Well, we have one gallery in particular called How Things Fly, which is entirely an interactive display on all the principles of flight and materials and propulsion and how things work. So particularly for youngsters, that's just a wonderful experience. What's the biggest surprise for people who come to the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum? I think when they see the real objects, you know, that's what's so special about the Smithsonian. When you come to the Smithsonian, you see things not only that you can see nowhere else in the world, but it is the actual thing that you are encountered, uh, encountering. One of the things that I always... You have the Apollo stuff. I mean, you've got, you've got the capsule. You have the Mercury. We have all of the key spacecraft, uh, the Apollo 11 command module, which we just celebrated the 50th anniversary of last year, which was on tour around the United States, is just uh, just arriving back at the museum, and that will be on display again at the museum. Uh, but one of the things that I always point to in that regard is the Wright Brothers airplane, the very first airplane, and we have the actual real Wright Brothers airplane. And you can be 10 feet away from it and be sort of nose-to-nose with it. And when I watch visitors encounter that object, it's really uh, obvious that they understand they're standing in something in front of something special. And the power of the object is really uh, what the Smithsonian is all about. Now, the Spirit of St. Louis? The Spirit of St. Louis, Charles Lindbergh's aircraft is on display, of course. And that one, that's the one that blows my mind. And I'll tell you why. He didn't have a front windshield. Well, he off, that was often commented. But, but I, mean, you, I mean, to me, that's like flying blind. Well, not really. You have to think about the context of the time, because in those days, in the open cockpit biplanes that they flew, and they were tail draggers, the tail was on the ground. So when you're taxiing on the ground, you can't see forward anyway. You're always looking out the side. That, so was, the DC, was, very that was the DC-3. I mean, it was always, it, it sat on the ground with its tail on the, on the, on the, on the floor. Yeah. So for Lindbergh, who was an experienced airmail pilot, uh, looking out the side was sort of a natural thing. And of course, there wasn't an awful lot of traffic over the North Atlantic at that time, so he wasn't too worried about that. How about zero? <laughs> Talk about a lonely flight, right? He didn't, have to, he didn't have to look out the window for traffic. No, no. Except for some high-flying birds, maybe. 
Yeah. Well, he was uh, uh, obviously had to uh, stay on course, and he was uh, uh, had to make sure he was uh, uh, on his on his charts and keeping a view of the sun and the stars and all of that. And considering the fact that they didn't really have autopilots in those days, he couldn't really fall asleep a lot. No, no. He uh, and in fact, he made it even harder on himself because the flight was thirty three and a half hours, but he didn't get much sleep before. So he was up more than sixty hours from oh. the time he last got some sleep till when he landed in Paris. Peter Jacob, the chief curator at the National Air and Space Museum, part of the Smithsonian. It's free. Go there and just take my advice. Watch out for the gift shop. <laughs> Peter, thanks so much. My pleasure. Back with more as we continue from the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C. as Ion Travel continues right after this. Thirty-three minutes after the hour, Peter Denver here with you as Ion Travel continues from the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C. I'm pleased to welcome back, I can almost call you a regular, we don't come to Washington without calling you. She's the reporter of the Washington Post, Roxanne Roberts, how are you? I'm well, thank you, how are you? I'm okay. Being at the Washington Post this, this time of year, and in an election year, has got to be the coolest thing going. Uh, it is, but it's also stress-inducing because... But from stress comes being cool, I, well, one might think that, or gray hairs, depending on how you want to look at it. But uh, because we're watching everything so closely and every day is crazier than the next, we never know what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty that, um, well, I gave up prognosticating about three years ago. So It was a good time to stop. Yeah. Uh, so I, I don't know what's going to happen, but that doesn't mean that we all don't try to figure out what's going to happen. The only thing I can tell you that does, that does remain consistent is that every four years, regardless of who the campaign is running or who's running against too. Americans tend to travel less every four years during the national election because of the word you just said, uncertainty. They tend to want to stay closer to home, or if they do travel, they'll do it within 300 miles of where they live, no matter where they are in the United States. So that pattern is continuing. Why do you think that is? Um, uncertainty. You know, whoever's run, doesn't matter whether when Reagan was running against Carter, when you know, when when I mean, when when George H. W. Bush was running against Dukak, same thing. People just tend to not. Travel. You think they didn't want to save money because they don't know? No, it's just people. What are the campaign promises about? Taxes, right? Money, right? Expense, mm -hmm. right? Maybe global conflict. People, you know what? Let's wait until after the election and see what happens. I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. it does make a lot of sense. Uh, but what I love about Washington and 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 is that regardless of the campaign, it's an amazingly walkable city. It's an amazingly accessible city, and it has more museums and more free museums than you can imagine. Your tax dollars at work, but I would say yeah. a really good use of tax dollars. I because, couldn't agree more. Um, the amount of stuff, you can come to Washington and stay a week and fill your days. And aside from cab fares or Ubers and food and hotel, you can literally do the rest of your days entirely free. It's amazing. It is amazing. Fabulous art, fabulous history. Uh, you know, just amazing, amazing stuff that really will take your breath away. And if you take the right amount of time, which means you're going to have to come for more than one visit, you will discover museums you didn't even know even existed. You know, there are, we all know about the Lincoln Memorial. We all know about the Jefferson Memorial. There's an Einstein Memorial. There's everything here. Yeah. And, and one of the things my son always yells at me when we travel together because he says I read every single placard at every single exhibit 
every single painting. Because so, you want to take it in. He says I'm a slow museum person. He, you know, he wants me to be more. Efficient. Wait a second. You know what? <laughs> I have a different way to do it. Okay. And you're not you're not doing anything wrong. There are people I know who want to go to a city and do five museums, and they bought, they are at that point by definition fast museum people because they just they just want to look like ticking off a box, right? Right. I have a rule. If I'm going to come to a city, I will only do one museum per trip because I want to take the time. I want to be able to immerse myself and learn and 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 engage. And otherwise, it becomes a blur. So I tell your son, it's okay to be slow. Well, I think there's two different ways. That yeah. That's the immersive way. Yes. And then there's what I call the dim sum way, which is where you dip in, <laughs> you take a little bite of that for a taste of that, and you dip into another one for a little bite. I tend to like yours because I want to get a full sense of... American history, for example, or I really want to look at the documents at the National Archives right. and really get a sense of what those things looked like. And it's the same reason I want to go to museums because I want to see what the original art is, you know, even if I've seen a reproduction of but it in a book. But at its essence, a, a, a wonderful and successful museum is really about storytelling. It is. And, yeah. and in this case, it's the story of this nation and how we came to be and how we continue to evolve it's pretty fascinating. By the way, speaking of museums, if you really want to be entertained, and I, I was really wonderfully surprised by it, not far away in Philadelphia, there's the Museum of the American Revolution. And it only opened about three years ago. It's amazing. Well, if you come to Washington, I think a lot of people don't realize um, how many Civil War sites, or they may, but Gettysburg is only really a little over an hour away. And, they, and, no, and most people don't know that. And it has developed into an amazing exhibition. You know, years and years ago, it used to be pretty uh, old-fashioned, and now it's very sophisticated, and you really get a sense. And I am, you know, always in love with the guides that will take you out into the field and show you how things, the topography, they've worked very hard even to keep the land looking the way it did during those three days of battle. Amazing. It amazing. is amazing. I mean, I used to, in a way, I, I, I want to sound elitist, but I used to kind of snicker at those Civil War reenactors. And then I watched one one day, and it began to make sense to me about the way it moved. It, it, we've seen too many movies. It didn't move the way the movie showed it. It moves slower than that. I, I think that one of the things that when you begin to take your time and learn, you realize, same with the Revolutionary War, it is amazing that uh, anybody wins those wars uh, and they're, they're sloppy and they're messy and they're hot and they're slow. One of the things about Gettysburg is that after the armies moved away, there were all these, it was in the middle of the summer, there were all these corpses we're talking to Roxanne Roberts from the Washington Post. When we come back with the corpses as a segue line, we'll talk about some other secrets of Washington. Back right after this. Forty-three minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Conrad as Ion Travel continues from Washington, D.C. with our guest, Roxanne Roberts from the Washington Post. When we last left off, we were looking at bodies at Gettysburg. Yes, but thankfully they are not there. But to imagine it is yes. amazing. I think that the best part of immersing yourself in Washington is trying to 
understand what it must have been like to live there at any given time and to get the feel for it. You know what's another great little museum, and it's relatively new, is the basement of Ford's Theater, which used to be just a basement, is now a really good little museum about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln and what led to it. And it's small enough that you can do it in maybe a couple of hours, but you really could get a good sense of sort of everything that led up to that moment. And even though you think you know it, again, you don't. Yeah. You see the clothing, you see um, the seats, you see everything about it, and it all of a sudden it becomes real in a way that um, you hadn't experienced before. The, it was a moving experience for me, which I was not anticipating, wasn't expecting. I was at the Presidential Museum, the Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield, Illinois. Mm-hmm. And what do they have there on display? Just right in front of you, his hat. And, you know, here we are 160 years later, right? And mm-hmm. there, it's like, whoa. I mean, that was, that was, that was one for me. But, but the thing is, when you think about Washington, what most people don't think about is this really, this town is really a southern town. It is a southern town, and that was one of the big controversies about its settlement originally. You know, should the capital be in the south? Should it be in the north? What advantages would that give? Who would get overlooked? You know, again, um, people who love American history have spent all sorts of time. But Georgetown, for example, which is now a very expensive and tony section of the city, used to be a poor area where they sold slaves. And it's and that would make sense because it's near the river. But if you haven't thought about it, all you see are these expensive, beautiful homes with, you know, wealthy, successful people inside. It's hard to imagine what it was like 200 years ago. Exactly. And in Georgetown, over by the canals over there, I mean, that's to me, that's the amazing part of Washington. Because for people who've not been here before, you just walk off the main street as you start going down the hill. It's like, wait a minute, how'd that get here? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And it's how all sorts of things got moved. Again, I, you know, the, 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 one of the wonderful things about these sort of historically um, resonant cities are that you really get an understanding not just what it was like to live in an old city, but that these were the places where the people that you read about in history books walked and fought and and yelled at each other and fell in love and fell out of love and did all the human things that we do. I think that the idea that when you can walk around the city and you can find all those places, it makes it... Um, in some ways more humbling to think about it, and it also means it's more relatable. And surprisingly accessible. It is accessible, but, you know, that's the whole idea, that 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 uh, all the residents of the District of Columbia are really mad that they're still not represented in Congress, and they should be. I, you know, but, we had Representative Holmes, right, Congresswoman right. Holmes, and she's putting up a bill. She's introducing a bill. Oh, there have been so many bills. <laughs> she seems to think it's got a shot. Well, it might. To but, make D.C. a state. But the point was is that the original conception of this place is that it would be the capital of the people, and therefore it wouldn't be separate like a state. It would yeah. be the place where everybody congregated okay. to do the business of the country. So the argument today is? Uh, there's no good argument today. <laughs> it's it's one of those things that seemed like a good idea at the time, but there are, what, 700,000 people who are not represented. represented. Uh, and, so does uh, this bill have any chance? Uh, not as long as Republicans control, because they believe, whether it's true or not, 
that uh, D.C. would be the equivalent of another democratic state. And so then you start to get into the politics of all of that. It gets complicated. It's always complicated. That's part. That's what makes Washington so interesting. Washington is endlessly interesting if it doesn't make you crazy. And you've been here how long? I have now lived and worked and covered it for more than three decades. And you're still sane. I'm still sane. And actually, I will say this, is that it is like watching history unfold in front of you. And a lot of what we're talking about today are going to end up, it's all going to end up in the history books. And I find that uh, pretty interesting. History lives here. It totally does. And it lives here every day. Which means it changes every day. It changes every day. And, and all the things that we think are really important at the moment, some of those will be footnotes to history. And, uh, but the trick is trying to figure out what really matters. And I would say that the one thing that always matters is that everybody, in all their scratching and fighting and name-calling and everything, is they're trying to figure out a more perfect union. Roxanne Roberts from The Washington Post. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Back right into this. Fifty-two minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you again from the Conrad Hotel here in Washington, D.C. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, my next guest is associated with a word that I haven't heard in a long time, Spotsylvania. <laughs> That's will right. Will you please That's explain right. that? But before you do that, let me introduce you. His name is Josh Murray. He's the executive chef here at the Conrad. Now explain Spotsylvania. <laughs> Spotsylvania is just a little rural place down in uh, central Virginia, pretty close to Lake Anna, and that's the hometown. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the middle of 35 acres and had my hands in the dirt. If it was broke, we fixed it. If we needed it, we built it. And, of course, if you're in Spotsylvania, you were having bacon. I, I mean... Where else would you not have bacon? It's Virginia. It's, I mean, Virginia ham. I know. (laughs) (laughs) But your menu is a lot more than that. That it is. That it is. It's um, definitely something that, you know, in our restaurants, we, you know, estuary itself kind of speaks to the Chesapeake Bay and one of the largest uh, natural estuaries in the whole entire world. And we really look to harvest that uh, through a very specific lens. Uh, You know, we have quite a bit of seafood to pull from, but the agricultural areas that are around that as well offer a bounty of different things for us to be able to take advantage of. Uh, A lot bigger and, and more diverse than it was back in Spotsylvania. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, down in Spotsylvania, we still had the Rappahannock River that goes into that uh, that same estuary anyway. So uh, I didn't have any complaints on what I had to work with in that area growing up. It definitely inspired me. But you, your journey here came through a number of different hotels. Yeah, it did. Uh, you know, I was very fortunate to uh, be able to get a very diverse background. Um, you know, I was in Florida, Southern Cal, Northern Cal, Chicago, uh, Arizona a couple different times. Uh, so I've definitely been able to do quite the uh, stint in various places around the country. So basically, you either couldn't hold the job or you're a fugitive from justice. I don't know. People just kind of <laughs> try to take me from one place to the next, you know. <laughs> but as you go up the levels here, your sourcing becomes better. Your, your opportunities become better, and then you can you can get more creative with the menu. Well, that is the name of the game. I mean, regardless of wherever I've been, it's always been about uh, really telling the history, not just about the food, but the actual history of the area through a very unique culinary lens. And, you know, to be able to travel all around the country like I have been and then come back to my hometown area, it's, it's like the best coming home party ever, you know? Although coming back to Washington today versus 20 years ago, 
uh, 20 years ago, there were steakhouses and steakhouses. That's right. That's and right. more steakhouses. And maybe one Vietnamese place. I mean, that, that, seriously. Yeah, no. And, and But now it's, it's I mean, it's incredible. I mean, you know, here at the hotel, we've partnered with Brian and Michael Voltaggio, who was part of that rebirth as well. But Jose Andres, Aaron Silverman, Pineapple and Pearls, Mini Bar. We have Michelin star restaurants coming up left and right. A couple two-star Michelin restaurants and a number of talented chefs that are on the verge of probably doing the same thing. So as you're creating your menu here, uh, I hope you had some free reign. So if you did, I always ask this of every chef, you are no exception, okay? <laughs> What's the one thing you put on the menu that you thought was going to be the big ace deliver and it tanked? And then what's the one thing you reluctantly put on the menu saying, why would anybody want this? And it's flying off the shelf. Well, I think uh, the one thing, and it's actually interesting, this one isn't even in the restaurant, it's in the banquet arena because it's such a vital part of what we're doing. But uh, I concepted this beautiful seascape that was literally a map of the estuary and it was all done with paintbrushes. And, and the idea was, is that you would get a group of 10, 15 people around that station and you would be using these different purees with complexities to them and building ceviche bites. Uh, and the times that we've sold it, people have just like gushed over it, but for some reason people just haven't been purchasing it the way that I thought it would. Um, you know, conversely to that, I think the so. It's remained in the estuary, as they say. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But okay. in, yeah, definitely in that banquet arena. Yeah. Um, you know, and and I think the other component is 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 you know in the morning time we have a, a dish on the menu called breakfast risotto, um, and it was one of those things when it started for me. I I always thought of the idea what oatmeal was, uh, but I couldn't always wrap my head around that bite when I took a bite. Of it. it always kind of left me a little disappointed. Morning. And so I took leftover dried out steel cut oatmeal and took leftover uh, uh, mushroom stock and turned it into this savory I, I, breakfast I risotto. I love that a chef is admitting to using leftover. Oh, gosh. It's, well, it's, I mean, it's sustainable, but, you know, it's, that's how we eat it. No, anyway. I love it. Yeah. That's how we eat anyway, you know. Yeah. But we put a fried egg on top of it, used this beautiful mushroom brodo in it, and we treated this 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 uh, steel cut oatmeal just like risotto and put a fried egg on it. It's just the most beautiful, savory breakfast ever. And people love it. Oh, God. It goes left and right. Okay. Now I got to do my pet peeve. Here's my pet peeve. Children's menus. I have not seen an evolved hotel children's menu yet. It's always mm -hmm. chicken fingers and, and grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah. So the thing about it for us is, is that I think the younger diners are becoming a lot more uh, sophisticated. sophisticated. Uh, and so, you know, with our, they want, they want chicken fingers with truffles. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I think the thing is, is that you have to be able to uh, make healthy choices for children available. Um, you know, and, and they have such a much more diverse palate. I mean, I think a lot of times we get people in the restaurant now that are at that age and they actually want to order off the regular menu anyway. So, you know, I, we, I don't even call it the kids menu. I call it the young travelers menu and uh, there's salmon on there. There's brown rice on there for them. Uh, and then we have a, a really cool way to be able to present our other dishes for them in a more uh, approachable format. Okay. So there's hope. Yeah, there is. Okay. <laughs> but can I still get a grilled cheese? Yes, of okay, course. <laughs> <laughs> I eat them still too. <laughs> I, I live on grilled cheese. I'm yeah. sorry. I'm very, I'm an easy guy. Yeah. I because there's always that temptation to chefs to overdo it, mm -hmm. you know, to just crowd the plate with stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, I think one of the things that I love about grilled cheese, I eat them at home a lot. And it's the leftover prosciutto, the leftover blistered tomatoes. And we're back to leftovers again. I love no, it. No, it's great. Yeah. And then you use that crusty bread, and then when you bite into it, it kind of scratches the roof of your mouth and, you know, makes you remember that bite for, for a few days. <laughs> well, I'll remember the interview. How about that? Josh right. Murray, the executive chef of the Conrad Washington. Thanks so much. That music means we're out of time for this hour. Stick around, everybody. We've got a whole lot more coming as Iron Travel continues from the Conrad right here in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to Ion Travel. If you're just joining us, let me tell you where we are. Peter Greenberg here. Now get out those maps. 
38 degrees, 53 minutes north, 77 degrees, 2 minutes west. We are in Washington, D.C. at the Conrad Hotel. You can always reach me at peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem, and we will solve it right here on the air. For those of you who listen to the show regularly, you know I don't come to Washington without my next two guests stopping by. They uh, they, they basically are the host of the Foodie and the Beast radio show, so you know we're going to talk about food. Uh, David and Nikki Nellis, how are you? Great. We're Thanks great. for having us back. Yeah, so, you know, every time, I can always say to you guys what's new, because in the restaurant scene here, there's always stuff new. Mm-hmm. But I'm, I'm. But the last time we talked, we talked about what was going on at the harbor, right? The wharf. The wharf. My God, it's still going strong. The harbor's in Georgetown. Yeah, well, I know. <laughs> you know what I'm talking. You about. New Yorkers, you. Don't, don't you start with me. No, but it's just booming over there. Yeah, the um, there's another phase that'll be opening up. Uh, really, more in twenty, like end of 2020, 2021. But just in the last three months. There's been over 18 or 20 restaurant openings in the D.C. area. And, you know, for a city the size of D.C., that's a lot. That's a lot of well, restaurants. And considering the turnover in general in the restaurant business, right, as a, as a profession, that's a big risk. Well, actually, what's really interesting is most of these spaces are brand new. It's just the investment of real estate dollars in this city, like the, the amount of money being invested and the new buildings and these massive spaces, and everybody wants a restaurant in it. I mean, you know, I, I'm one of those guys who, I, I in New York City, I can walk from 42nd Street up to 96th Street on Madison Avenue, and every third storefront is vacant. Right, they're, they're, it's like empty, like ghost town time, and, and some of the highest priced real estate in the world where all those restaurants used to be. How are the prices here? The prices are outrageous. And they're still investing. And well, that's the part I sort of struggle with the most. I mean, if you had a restaurant tour in here, he could really go at it with you about what what people are charging per square foot. I mean, the restaurant industry, the margins are razor thin, and with uh, the real estate prices being the way they are, it makes it even more difficult for somebody to turn a profit. And, you know, people want Chinese, sparkly, beautiful places. So you got to put a lot of money in there. Well, right where we are here, we're mm-hmm. city center, mm-hmm. right? And it, like, what, 40 feet away from me on the street, you've got a lot of restaurants. You have some really fabulous restaurants. And some, I mean, one of our favorite restaurants, it's not a new restaurant, Amy Brandwine, who just got nominated again for a James Beard Award. She has Centralina. And, I, then, and by the way, it's a small place. Yeah, but it's fabulous. Yeah, but it's it tiny. rocks. It's, I know. It's and across know. from it. Well, you know what I like about it? What? You can go shopping there, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. They have a little store. Also, if you have time, she opened a little market, an actual market now across from it called Piccolina. (laughs) And um, she's got fabulous baked goods and light sandwiches, um, a pizza oven. It's, It's really great. But if you were to travel maybe like in a different block radius around... There's some really fascinating restaurants that have opened in the last couple of weeks. Is there one particular type of restaurant in all these explosions of restaurants that stands out as a type of restaurant? Are we like dealing with a, an explosion of Lebanese places or or uh, avocado toast places? I think avocado toast is like is on it? everybody's breakfast menu in the hotels. Yeah. So there are two things happening. So uh, Asian style cuisines and merging of Asian cuisines are really very hot right now. So uh, we have the Singaporean chef from BAM uh, in Singapore. He's just opened up Cranes here in DC. It's a fusion of Japanese and Spanish cuisine. Of and course then, it is. Right. Yeah. And then you have uh, Tanari, and that's uh, and that's right around the corner from the Conrad Hotel. That's Katsuya Fukushima. He has many restaurants here in DC. And that's sort of this Japanese fusion with Italian. It's very popular in Japan right now. So it's like, 
Japanese flavors with in pizza. No, it's Domo Rigatoni. Yeah, I mean, right. Oh, very funny. Uh, but I had, anyway. I, I mean, yeah. can you say Katsuya Fukushima three <laughs> times you fast? Did. I did. I did I'd say Gazunta hate. <laughs> but so I think you're, I, you are seeing uh, a lot of cuisines that maybe didn't have that kind of platform before. Burmese food is very hot right now. Um Literally and figuratively. Yes, yeah. it is. Um, and, you know, you're seeing sort of different regional cuisines. So, like, instead of traditional Thai, you're seeing cuisines from different areas. People are baking, uh, really breaking uh, the boundaries. So now there's a northern Thai place as opposed to just a Bangkok place. Exactly. You know, it's... It, DC's a very educated consumer when it comes to dining. And they, they're traveled. Obviously, it's a city of a lot of diplomats. So people are ready for that kind of cuisine. Is there a good Ethiopian place in town? So there's quite a few Ethiopian places in town. I heard a sigh. I heard a sigh. Yeah, and? Well, it's uh, Ited is the one that always gets the biggest sort of raves. I'm not an expert on it, so I'm not going to pretend that I know. Actually, in the suburbs, there are even better ones. Yeah. Um, a lot, I think, you'll find a lot more sort of true ethnic cuisines. See, um, what, I, what I've discovered in the suburbs, mm -hmm. when you really want to find the really great ethnic restaurants, they're in the strip malls. They're the they little hole in the wall. Uh, yeah, right, it's and, I mean, and it's great. You were talking about, you know, why are people opening up and when the rents are so high and all that. It's like the gold rush. They're, the, they're all prospectors. They all think they've got a great concept. They come down, they get their money, they try it, some fly and some die. Exactly. Uh, but the ones out in the... I mean, there's some great food out in the suburbs i i my restaurant is my restaurant my office is out in annadale where where there's this huge cluster of and annadale uh, Korean, is how far from where we are right now maybe five miles easy but it's northern virginia well right. it's five miles as the crow flies it's probably 10 years of your life to drive there but um then you uh, get hungry well by, by <laughs> the time you, by the time you get there you've eaten your arm but uh, <laughs> great korean food probably i mean with the exception of one or two restaurants downtown mm -hmm. best korean food is out in annadale well except for anju which yeah is anju which is the number, the number one, one restaurant. restaurant in the city yeah anju is unbelievable so that's scott Juno and danny lee um and their chef angel they um opened a, a korean snack restaurant and washingtonian just named it the best restaurant in the city wow. and it's it is it's excellent and then you got the guys here at the conrad with their restaurant brian and michael voltaggio yeah. mm -hmm. i mean they they just changed the menu so i was here last year when they just started it was great oh, so good. i'm looking forward to it yeah what's the biggest surprise restaurant that's opened surprise the one that you never saw coming that just exploded well so um it's not new it's been around maybe for nine months or a year there's a restaurant called rooster and owl yep. and um it's a couple husband wife team you know not really big on the food scene like, like most times when a restaurant's opening i either know them or know of them i didn't know either of them but uh it's a um tasting menu you get what you get and you don't get upset you know it is what it is when it's laid out and uh, it's not egregiously expensive um and it it is asian in its general presentation. Um, fabulous cocktail list, really interesting wine list. So that to me, Rooster and Owl, all the food media and foodies just went nuts. And having been there, it's it's very good. 
Rooster and Owl. Rooster and Owl. That's up in uh, Those are the two Shaw. entrees. That's up in Shaw. And I'll tell no, no. you. It's Rooster and Owl tastes just like chicken. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, Come on. it's because she is a morning person, Cockadoodle-Doo. She gets up like a rooster. And he's a night that's owl. That's the new restaurant, Cockadoodle-Doo. Right. Yeah. And he's a night owl. So that's their story. Reminds me of a story. Um, but I will tell you, there's one other restaurant that um, opened up in Adams Morgan, Revelers Hour. It's from the people of Tail Up Goat. It's pasta, and it's, it's pretty fabulous. But it's no Rooster and Owl. It's a different kind of restaurant. <laughs> David and Nikki Nellis, the co-hosts of Foodie and the Beast, as always, thanks for coming. Thanks for Great having to be us. Here. Back with more as we return to the Conrad right here in Washington, D.C., right after this. Eighteen minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you as we return to Ion Travel, coming to you from the Conrad right here in Washington, D.C. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with the imaginative name PeterGreenberg.com for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, opportunities for you to get involved in in an up-close and personal way and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. And we always like to localize those opportunities. There's no exception here in Washington, D.C. Check out the Oyster Recovery Partnership. They're based actually in Annapolis, not too far away, dedicated to the restoration and growth of Chesapeake Bay oysters. And that's really important and hard work. They work regularly right, actually, with the, with the hotel right here. But the cool thing is you get to volunteer in the sanctuaries, in the reserves, the public fishing grounds. It means you're going to be working outside. How cool is that? And the best part about it is you're working with the people who actually live here. So when they're finished helping you and we're finished helping them, who better to give you a tour of the neighborhood than the folks in the volunteer organization known as the Oyster Recovery Partnership. If you want more information, that's easy. Just go to oysterrecovery.org or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the global list of where you can help all around the world. And I say this every week. I'll repeat it. What you get back from what you give back is exponential in return. Joining me now, a native... Oh, my God. A native Washingtonian. He's also the editor-in-chief at DC Magazine. How appropriate. Michael McCarthy, how are you, sir? Peter, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. You know, I'm, I'm from New York, and, and, you know, I grew up in neighborhoods. Uh, I spent a lot of time and still do in Los Angeles, where it's like 86 incorporated cities in desperate search for a neighborhood. But Washington, D.C. is neighborhoods. We're a city of neighborhoods. And I think when people come here for the first time, they go to the National Mall. And... They look around and I think, it doesn't look like there's much on the horizon. There's something over the horizon. That's called Arlington. That's actually in Virginia. The neighbors that people know about here, of course, Georgetown, the cobblestone streets, the great shops, very famous, you know, Jack and uh, Jack Kennedy and Jackie moved in here when in Georgetown when they were, uh, and he was in Congress in the 50s and gentrified it. And it became this thing, obviously. Yeah. And that's, that's the neighbor that a lot of people know about. But D.C. has become many neighborhoods that have burgeoned over the last, oh gosh, the last five to 10 years. I mean, there are some neighborhoods in this town that, uh, I hate to say it, I mean, not now, but then I would hate to say it, I didn't want to go to. Oh, absolutely. Uh, And and, you know, where where the stadium is now is a good example. Southeast D.C. So when the Nationals announced that they were going to build Nationals Park, my father, who was born and raised in D.C. too, said, what in the heck are they doing? Are they crazy? No one's going to go there. 
Well, Peter, here's what's happened down in Southeast D.C. It's every time I go to a game, and I'm a huge baseball well, fan. Well, by the way, it doesn't hurt that your team's doing okay. <laughs> it, it, it helps, for sure. But even in the lean days, you know, when things weren't happening down there, you'd go to a game every two or three weeks, and you'd look around, and these buildings would grow like mushrooms. And that's what's happened down there. It's officially called Navy Yard. But you've got great restaurants. You have actually have another stadium called Audi Field, where DC United plays and where the Washington Spirit plays. You're going to hear a lot about Washington Spirit this summer because it's our women's professional team. All those women, of course, will be coming into town who played in the World Cup and who are going to be playing on the Olympic team this summer. So let's get back to Southeast and Navy Yard. Something's happening there every weekend. Not only baseball, but you've got great restaurants like the Salt Line, which is right on the Anacostia River. You can go out, have crabs, oysters, watch the world go by uh, via boat. And then, of course, you have, uh, you know, what's really cool is that Danny Meyer has decided to have his first restaurant. Not, outside, a, shake, not a Shake Shack. Not a Shake Shack. Out, a fine dining restaurant outside of New York City. Uh, you know, have his, he has Gramercy Tavern, of course, in New York. He built it in Southeast D.C. It's in the Thompson Hotel. And upstairs on the rooftop, he has something called Anchovy Social, which has the best views of Nats Park, great place to go before and after games. So it's a really neat neighborhood. It's, it's walkable. It's, uh, it's something you can enjoy, you know, during baseball season or any time of the year, really. And of course, you always want to go to a game. Oh, yeah. I mean, Nats games are so much fun. One of the reasons why I love Nats games so much is that you can stand anywhere. I, I'm a, I, I, I actually I'm like very, that. I like that stadium. Oh, it's great. And yeah. I, I don't like sitting still. I like moving around the park. There's, there's a place out in Centerfield you can sit and have beers, stand, talk to people. The locals are really friendly. Everybody wants to talk baseball. What's also neat here is that you have people from other parts of the world in, this, in, in the United States living here who are Cubs fans, Yankees fans, you know, Giants fans who come. Hey, what happens if you're a Mets fan? <laughs> you're lonely. Mets you're fan. very lonely. Hey, this could be their year. You never know. That's what we Don't say, they say that every, every year. year. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Uh, right. No, but, but the cool thing is I've made it a point to try to get to every baseball stadium that there is. Yeah. And I've made it to almost all of them. I haven't gotten Detroit yet. But I've done Cleveland, and I've done New York, and I've got Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's a great state. Oh, PNC Park is gorgeous. Oh, my gorgeous. God. Went there for the first time last summer, walked across Roberto Clemente Bridge. It's a knockout. Love that park. Yeah, and you know the really cool thing about these stadiums now? And they're starting to do it. I don't know if National's got it yet. Mm. But what they've done is, you know the guys at Clear? Yeah. Right? Yeah. They are, they're doing now Clear at the stadiums. Yeah. So you, you go right through the security and you can even use it to buy your stuff. You yeah, know? yeah. So you can buy all the overpriced hats you want. <laughs> but the point is, it makes it more accessible. Yeah, it's a yeah. great fan experience. And there's good food at Nats Park, too. Yeah, but at PNC, I'm telling you, those guys nice. have it. it and of course, nice. City Field now, which replaced the old Shea Stadium, yes. yeah. they've got they've got great food out in the outfield. There. Yeah, they do. Yeah. It's a, we're, we're very lucky here. And the fact that the Nats won the World Series, as you said, definitely I mean, look, helps. I go back to the old days where there was only one caterer or a food supplier at the state was the Harry M. Stevens Company, and they only sold the world's worst hot dogs and the world's most ridiculous buns. And you knew it was bad. You knew it was going to kill you, but you didn't have a choice. You're going to pay your five bucks, darn it. And, I know. And either way. Yeah. Either way. All right, but let's talk about where we are right here at the Conrad. You've got City Center here, which five or six years ago was also nothing. Yeah, I love, I love this area. This has become sort of like an unofficial downtown because you said you have City Center, D.C., 
great shopping here, especially upscale shopping. You have Dior and Gucci. And then, of course, you have the Conrad Hotel. Well, they, with, got, a, they got a Tiffany's in here. And they have a Tiffany's and more to come. So uh, if you're looking for upscale shopping, as you'll find in New York or London and any other great city in, in the world, really, it's right here in D.C. now. So it's really cool. And then at the Conrad, you know, which is which just opened last year, you've got Estuary, which is a wonderful restaurant from the Voltaggio Brothers. Yeah. And, you know, these are guys, this, this whole restaurant is an homage to where they grew up. They grew up here in the Chesapeake watershed, and they have really done a great job here with the food. The atmosphere is very modern and chic, and, you know, you can't go wrong with uh, eating from guys uh, who were on Top Chef. Okay, oh, there's no ego involved there, no. But what I love about this hotel is the lighting. Is yeah. the light, you know? You, you don't have to, you don't get trapped by mood lighting. You can right. actually see what you're doing and, and, and actually think. Well, if you think about it, Peter, you know, we're very lucky here in Washington because there aren't skyscrapers. And, well, that's Everywhere the old you walk, nothing could be taller than the Capitol. Right. Everywhere you walk in D.C., you've got sunlight, even by the way, in the dead there are winter. two cities in the United States that have that rule. One is here, mm-hmm. right? No building can be taller than the Capitol building. Yep. The other is Madison, Wisconsin, Didn't which the Capitol building is designed to look just like the Capitol building That's here, right. and the same rule applies. Yeah, it's it's a great city for light, and yeah. and especially if you're out shooting anywhere, uh, photographs uh, anywhere in the city, it's just it's amazing. All right, so we dealt with. Southeast. We dealt yeah. with right here at City Center. What's the one neighborhood that's going to be the next Southeast or City Center? Well, it sort of is happening right now. It's Southwest Waterfront. So what happened there years ago, There's we have a great theater called Arena Stage. And uh, the artistic director there, Molly Smith, said, I want to stay in Southwest. Again, everybody said, Molly, you're nuts. This is not going to work. Why are you staying in Southwest D.C.? This is not a great area. Well, she stayed. Redesign Arena Stage. It's one of the prettiest regional theaters in the country. It's just gorgeous. Across the street now is something called The Wharf on the Southwest Waterfront. We have amazing shops and restaurants, probably one of the best concert venues in the country now called The Anthem. It's created by the same folks who Rolling Stone said had created the best club in America called The 930 Club, which has hosted every band from REM to The Clash over the years. It's legendary. Well, the same folks just created the anthem at the wharf. What I like about the wharf, you can get there by boat. You sure can. I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah. And what the the other cool thing is that the people who were living on the Southwest waterfront for years in their houseboats got to keep their slip. They're not going away. So it still has some of that gritty flavor to it. And it also has the main seafood shed, which is this amazing place where you can buy seafood. It's still there. And um, in addition to, you know, going to Del Mar, which is Fabio Trabacchi's new restaurant. And one of my other favorite places called Officina. It has one of the greatest rooftop decks where you can watch sunsets on the water. Just a really nice neighborhood. And, and so the wharf is, that's just phase one. Phase two is starting right now. So you'll see a lot of great hotels and residences over the course of the next five years. So absolutely what you're saying is nothing's happening in Washington. <laughs> nothing's happening. Nothing. I haven't even talked about Northeast. We're, well, we're out of time. Oh, we're no. Out. Yes, we are. <laughs> Michael McCarthy, the editor-in-chief at DC Magazine. Thank you so much, man. We really oh, appreciate thank you, that. sir. And I'll see you at the stadium. Oh, yeah. Grab, grab that expensive hot dog, will you? Oh, God. Back with more right after this. Fifty-two minutes after the hour, Peter Greenberg here with you from the Hotel Conrad here 
in Washington, D.C. as Eye on Travel continues. Uh, my next guest has the estimable job of, of running this hotel, and her name is Laura Schofield. But before I introduce her in the proper way, you know, I judge a hotel by the bathroom, and I, and I judge the hotel by the light in the bathroom. And those are my original metrics. And if the light in the bathroom works, chances are the rest of the hotel works because somebody paid attention to what people really like to do. Also, the light in the room. I hate getting trapped by mood lighting. Mood lighting puts me in a bad mood. I like to have the options of being able to think because I do a lot of work in my room. A lot of people do. I mean, they, they, they make their bed their office. They sit there and they work. But I've now added a different metric because, first of all, the light works, the bathroom works, but there's something else that works, and somebody really put some thought into this when they designed this hotel. Laura, I'm telling you, you're the most outlet-friendly <laughs> hotel I've ever seen. I'm, I am never, when I, when I built my house in Los Angeles, I decided, because I'd spent so much time in hotels, obviously the light was going great, but I also decided something else, that I never wanted to be more than 10 feet away from an outlet, a telephone, a television, and a refrigerator, a minibar. <laughs> And that's why every bedroom had one, right? You guys, I mean, it's great. That's fantastic to hear. Our interior designers put a lot of thought into it. Um, even if you walk down on our meeting room level, even the benches in the public space have outlets in them. So if you're if you break from a meeting, there's no more plugging into the corner of your meeting room. No more, no longer crawling along the carpet. No more crawling along the carpet. There's just so much thought put into even in some of our food and beverage outlets. If you go sit in our gorgeous bar, the side tables have outlets plugged in, so you can charge your phone while you're having cocktails with friends. See, I've always believed that hotel designers should never be paid for their work until they actually had to spend a night in the room they designed. I think it's a great precedent. Because people really don't change their lifestyle when they change their location. They think that, oh, I'm on vacation. Really? You're looking for a plug to plug in, right? It's just the way it is. Absolutely. Well, I'm so glad you appreciated that. It's the first thing I saw. (laughs) It's the first thing I saw. But you've been in the hotel business for a while. I have. I have. I actually grew up in it. I'm a second generation hotelier. So I tell people I either should have known better or it's definitely in my blood. (laughs) Um, So we'll go with it's in my blood. And I just, I love the people that you meet in the hotel business. And obviously we just have these gorgeous, spectacular uh, properties we get to be in. The thing about this hotel that really blew blew me away is your use of light and your use of space. And then I discovered that your architect is the same guy who did the Tate Museum in London. Yes, Herzog de Muron. Just a stunning piece of modern architecture here in D.C. I, Like you, I just love the floor-to-ceiling windows everywhere. All of our meeting space is above ground. It all has natural light. We finally learned that no one wants to be stuck in the basement for eight hours in a meeting. Uh, you know, the you, hotel you, you just finally risen. Learned that. Finally okay. learned that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we're just so lucky to have this just spectacular property. Even on a dull day, the hotel is just full of light um, and just a, a joy to be in. And the other thing is your location. Yes. Uh, this was a forgotten location in Washington for a long time. It really was. Then you had the, you had the convention center here, which is walking distance mm-hmm. here. But that was it. There really weren't any restaurants, there was no retail. Within about 80 feet of this hotel, you got about 30 different restaurants. You got markets. You got great clothing, great retail. I mean, it's it's really nice. It's a fantastic location. It's really a new neighborhood almost for Washington D.C. And I think um, there was so much excitement. What, what is the neighborhood? Uh, this is city center D.C. I never heard. You see, five years ago, nobody ever said city center D.C. Absolutely no. The city center D.C. is is its own um, enclave here. We've got a gorgeous park. The park that is right here at the side of the hotel does a beautiful farmer's market all through the summer. We have the lovely Christmas tree that goes up. um, Just something going on seasonally. So uh, there's always something going on in this area. And you can walk it. You can walk. It's one of my favorite things about Washington. This is a very walkable city. Um, You know, it's very easy 
easy to navigate, just the way the streets are laid out. You know, it, it, it's actually the best way, I think, to see Washington is just to walk. And you came from a, from an old school hotel. I did. You came from the St. Regis. I did, which was is a spectacular hotel. But another, I think it's a piece of great architecture, but from another era. Exactly. And I think that's what I love about this hotel. This is almost a part of the story of this renaissance of Washington. Washington's not just about politics and, and museums. It's about interesting neighborhoods. It's about mm-hmm. fantastic cuisine. Washington's really changed in the last 10 to 15 years. And we love that we're part of that story. And then I have to say this. If you happen to stay on the floor that allows you access to the club, I have to say this. You get to go in the club. It's open for 24 hours at a time. It never closes. And there's a refrigerator in there. And you go in the refrigerator. If you come back late at night after you, from a dinner or a meeting, you know you can go into the refrigerator. And you go into the refrigerator, and what do you see? haagen Yes. And little, little cups of haagen yes. that are screaming your name. <laughs> I mean, that ain't bad. We we wanted that floor to feel like it was it was your home away from home. So I'm glad you got to experience it. It's one of my favorite parts of the hotel. Has the most gorgeous views over the city as well. Um, and there's outlets and all the be- all the banquettes up there as well. It's true. You can get plugged in anywhere. A- absolutely anywhere. Of course, with all those plugs, the only thing I worry about is it takes away the opportunity for many people to have a conversation because they're all plugged into the wall. They're all like looking down as opposed to looking up. Well, hopefully they leave their phones charging and they're just enraptured by the food and the beverage and, and the gorgeous views. Well, I was enraptured by the haagen at about 11.30 <laughs> last night. That's all That's all I can really say. Fabulous. But it wasn't bad. And the light, when you come into this hotel, don't just look straight, look up to. The light is everywhere. It, it, it's amazing. And, and one of my favorite features is the moon in the, in the lobby. It takes its cues from the lights outside. And it changes color during the course of the day. So it's it, it's a 14-foot moon, and it's bright white in the morning, and it's gorgeous amber-orange in the evening. So moon all- swings. <laughs> <laughs> Laura Schofield, the general manager right here at the Conrad. Thanks so much. Thank Thanks you. to Dara Stone, Jeff Ryder, Laura Schofield, and her entire staff here at the hotel, and Catherine Zyke. Is it Zyke or Zyke? It, it's Zyke. I got it right. See you guys next week. And thanks to all my guests, as well as thank you for listening to this Ion Travel broadcast. For more interviews with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the Ion Travel podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. You can also go to petergreenberg.com for the latest in travel news. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Divya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast. 
and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.